The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Podcast. I'm your co-host James Kaminsky, and I'm your co-host Paul Kaminsky. Well, thanks for coming back, everybody. Uh, I'm glad we didn't scare you away. And by everybody, I mean all two of you. <laughs> yeah, if you're new to the podcast, we are uh, a couple of third men obsessed mutants, basically, who are on a quest to learn the history behind Jack White, Third Man Records, and basically his whole thing, because uh, we we really never knew about it growing up and listening to his music, so. Yeah, there's a lot out there about a lot of different bands, but not a lot out there about Jack White. So this is us learning and you guys learning along with us. And um, feel free to call us nerds. Ugh, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can feel free to call us nerds. Okay, fine. And as always, uh, we are here to learn something as well as make goofs. So if we get anything in error, feel free to email us at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. And today, we are going to be discussing the history behind White Blood Cells, uh, the 2001 White Stripes album. One of my favorites. But before we get to that, uh, I would like to introduce a segment we talked about last time. Stop breaking down! Stop breaking down! Stop breaking down! Please stop breaking down! Stop breaking down! Ooh. Now, I want to say it's not exactly an error on our part, more of just um, an odd coincidence. In an interview during the Blunderbuss era, in reference to Jack hating cars, Jack said, I think a lot of people think, sorry, let me do my Jack voice. <laughs> I think a lot of people think I don't like technology, and I really do like technology. I drive an electric car. I drive a Tesla. Oh, wow. So, so that's our so, first correction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, James, of course, referring to last episode where we detailed Jack's dislike for automobiles in which James uh, James claimed he was behind the times and he could drive an electric car if he wanted to. <laughs> Real scathing indictment there, James. Jack's doing the Astro. <laughs> uh, oh, man. All right. To get into the White Blood Cells, the album was released on July 3rd, 2001. So he and Meg record White Stripes in 99. We get Distille in 2000. And then in 2001, we get Blood Cells. He's putting out a record a year, which he kind of does from this point on more or less up until the present day, actually. That's kind of a quick pace for Jack. Yeah, and there's only been two years like since that that he hasn't released uh, an album of some kind. It was recorded in about a week in Memphis, Tennessee, which is similar to the first album in which he was recording it in another in a week also. Yeah, right? that was 7 to 10 days. It was recorded in Memphis? That's awesome. Yeah, he recorded it at Easley McCain uh, recording in Memphis, Tennessee. He set up a series of rules for himself for this album. So after the initial album and after Distyle, he uh, decided that he wanted to go back to basics and he set up a series of specific rules that he and Meg had to follow, which is, you know, kind of in, in Jack's MO. So the rules that he set up, there was to be no cover songs on the okay. album. No cover songs. Right. No guitar solos. What? Yeah. No blues. And as few overdubs as possible. Well, uh, and that this I is, get. <laughs> and this is all um, in reaction to the what he quotes as the luxury of the style. Well, I get it. Because, <laughs> I mean, didn't he even do like a pop version of Pretty Good Looking for a Girl? Almost as a gag yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah, on on a on a single. It's an interesting song. It's an interesting mix. But uh, <laughs> I bet you, I bet you, some of his asshole Detroit friends were telling him he sold out, and he uh, took it to heart. 
almost inevitably he he goes on a lot in interviews during this time which there's so much to dig through uh with this where he's just saying you know it's it's like when you become a big fish in this small pond everybody gives you like this weird look you know if you walk into a restaurant they're like i don't want to cater to you because you're big and famous now right so it's like people were starting to resent him even in in his hometown Um, i i think he smelled a rat (laughs) i mean for real when you read those lyrics we'll get to that but i think he's just railing against those people and you know he really he really tried his best to stick to this weird set of rules. He's quoted as saying, "We tried to keep it as unorganized as possible." <laughs> we were we rehearsed for a week and then we went to a Memphis studio we'd heard about and recorded it for 3 days, which is amazing because 3 days? Yeah, he wow. recorded it in in 3 days. That's crazy. And then in another 3 days was mixing, like entirely production and engineering and mixing, which is an astoundingly amazing feat. I wonder if he I wonder if he recorded it in a place that's nearby to where he's where he currently like lives and works now and stuff. Well, I mean, he records uh he lives in and stuff in Nashville. Right. And this is oh, all this in Memphis. Memphis. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he, he wasn't really like uh, a part of the Nashville scene quite yet, but he's starting to find roots in Tennessee. Anyway, so he he he's also quoted as saying, we tried to rush this as much as possible to make it really sound tense. And it seemed to work. <laughs> it, it It's really a lot of no's, as he puts it, you know, with the no covers, no solos, etc. And he says that there's no blues on the new record. We're trying to break from that. There's no slide work, bass, guitar solos, cover songs. It's just me, Meg, guitars, drums, and piano. Wow. So he was pretty set in, his, in making something out of nothing. He was already uh, in a little room. How, how yes. littler could this thing get? Well, that's kind of the weird message. It's an album that is in response to... Not only the luxury of the style of what he considers luxury, but also of him getting famous and to become a known name when he really just wants to make the art. You know, in the in the album cover, there's there's a bunch of black silhouetted men trying to take his photograph and and record him, and they're trying to uh, keep away from them. Basically, the album art is like a duality, as I put it, between being overtaken by paparazzi and uh, smiling and embracing them. Because on the inside of the album art is them actually smiling for the cameras and being cool. So it's like them putting on this face for, you know, the magazines and for the shows and to become a big name, but they kind of also don't like it. And this theme kind of pops up more and more and more as you listen to the album. Even the name White Blood Cells, sorry to keep quoting him, but here's another quote from Jack. The the name White Blood Cells is for the album is the idea of bacteria coming at us, or just foreign things coming at us, or media, or attention on the band. It seems to us that there are just so many bands from the same time, or before we started, that were playing, and are still playing, and they don't get this kind of attention that we're getting. Is this attention good or bad? When you open the CD, it's a picture of us with these cameras, wondering if it's good or bad. Wow. I never even interpreted it beyond face value. I just accepted it was another weird cover. I never read into it like that. That's really cool. Yeah. It shows up a lot in the context of the lyrics, like uh, Little Room and... Expecting. um, Offend in every way. Offend in every way, definitely. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's funny, too, on this album, I notice he's playing a lot of songs that he used to do with his older groups. We don't get any of that on the debut album we don't get a lot of it on to steal but by the time we get to blood cells he's doing dead leaves and yorba and union forever and all these songs that he was doing with the go and the bricks and two-star tabernacle i wonder if he felt that he and meg were together as a group enough to tackle those kinds of more slightly complicated songs or Hmm. if it was just him running out of material and pulling from the, you know, the, the closet, I, you know? I think it was a little more to do with that because it was so rushed. His no cover rule kind of made it so that he had to pull from some of the archives. Which is which worked out for everybody because those songs, as it turns out, are amazing. And he should have been doing those from the beginning. <laughs> some songs that he pulled out for this album uh, that were previously written, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground, 
Hotel Yorba, now Mary. Yeah. Now same Mary. boy you've always known. Union Forever. Union Forever, yeah, was another one. He's he's definitely digging back into his former self, which is weird for him. He's usually uh, kind of a futurist, always going, looking forward. Worth noting on this album, he and Meg were married for the first record. They were divorced <laughs> for Distille. And when this record came out, and Jack, please correct us if I'm wrong, I believe he was single because this predates his other relationships. And so it would make sense that a lot of this anger toward, I mean, because a lot of these songs are really angry at his significant other, whoever that winds up being. In a sense, it sort of falls to Meg, which is kind of makes it a little awkward that he's playing on these songs, uh, that she's playing on these songs. Like, I Can't Mm -hmm. Wait is a breakup song. And yeah. she, and his the person he broke up with is playing with him on it, but the the fun fact I learned is not long after this not long after this album came out he started dating Marcy Bolin one of the founding members of the Von Bondies, wow and he was with Marcy until uh, Zellweger wow anyway so the record was released in sympathy for the record industry label well done John yeah uh, they really like that label because basically they're their own boss and sympathy is you know a small enough label where they're they're not being ordered by anybody to do anything they really enjoyed being in charge of everything and setting everything up and saying yes to every bit of their merch and they were actually courted by a lot of different big labels at the time to actually record with them like Sub Pop which Sub Pop famously did the go which uh, Jack was featured on a Sub Pop record record with them called what you doing i believe hmm. but he he said no because he he really enjoyed working with the uh, long gone john and all them and he said i don't know if sympathy's ever had a band that's really been huge or anything so if it does happen or if it gets bigger it would be nice to be on a label like that when you get into all that money and people telling you what to do it's just harassment constant harassment so he he really didn't want to to have to deal with that kind of for lack of a better term bullshit yeah Uh, And I'm sure he wanted to maintain ownership of his songs, which a lot of those bigger record companies weren't going to allow him to do. The benefit of Long Gone John is that guy, I think he was just a say yes kind of guy. And if he could skim a little bit off the top, he would. But I'm sure Jack found some sort of personality resonance in the man. And Mm -hmm. to Long Gone's credit, even though he's a... and we. Long gone. Please come on the show. You seem like a scumbag, though. <laughs> but to your credit, you never took ownership away from Jack or tried to dispute it or anything like that. That is huge. That's not a small thing. So really, really good on you, Long, long Gone. We love you. So we, we do. We do uh, love you very much. Please come on the show. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the, the album was recorded in Easley McCain Recording in Memphis, Tennessee. They were re- encouraged to uh, visit Easley McCain by some of their friends, including uh, the Oblivions. He said that this is Stuart Sykes talking, by the way, that John Rice of Rocket from the Crypt also recommended him and the studio to the White Stripes. And uh, Easley McCain, you know, was a was a pretty well-known establishment, even though it was basically just, you know, a living room with a recording studio in it, uh, which is kind of hilarious. There's video I was able to find on YouTube of the old recording studio, and you walk in and it just looks like a house. There's like neighborhood kids playing basketball outside, and then they just walk into this house, and then there's like music memorabilia everywhere, and then there's this like recording studio, you know, there's his own little Abbey Road in this guy's living room. Wow. It's kind of cool. Some of Easley McCain's client, previous clients, Towns Van Zant, Wilco, Cat Power, Modest Mouse. They did good news for people who love bad news wow. for Modest Mouse. The Box Tops, Sonic Youth, The Gories. Um, so just like a whole slew of pretty famous bands uh, were involved. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Wilco. Included, like, that's, that's nuts. This was the first album that was recorded in a studio that was not Jack's Garage. <laughs> the recording engineer for White Blood Cells was Stuart Sykes. He's a man of many hats. He's worked with a lot of different bands doing a lot of different things. You know, he, he had a lot to say during the recording. He says Jack overdubbed his vocals and a second guitar on all songs, which is hilarious because Jack put down a rule that there would be no overdubs. Um, <laughs> but he's a perfectionist, so... Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sykes was also uh, on the record as saying, Meg said she didn't really know the songs. We recorded it in like two days. And then the last days, we just did some rough mixes. Some of those mixes, I think, are on the record. And then they came back for two more days and they did maybe one or two more songs. Of that record, he says simply, it got me a lot of work. 
Hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. He was definitely proud of it. No kidding. Yeah. Did, did so, Jim I mean, Diamond he, work on this one at all? No, I don't believe so. Uh, poor Jim Diamond got cut loose. <laughs> the Diamond has lost his sheen. I wonder but, if he uh, got in a fist fight with Jim Diamond. I bet you he did. <laughs> I bet you he punched that dude right in the face. Jim Diamond was like, I don't care for Apple Blossom. And Jack said, I don't care for several of your retina nerves and punched him in the eyeball. I don't care much for your teeth. And he (laughs) socked him. Anyway. But yeah, I think some interesting things come from from these interviews with Sykes about white blood cells. I mean, a lot of information that Meg basically didn't think they should be recording (laughs) because she she thought their songs were were a little too new. She only had like a week to practice, so she's probably panicking. But I guess Jack reassured her a lot. Well, Jack told Uh, her not to practice. Right. Sykes seemed to think that it was her being like nervous, being in a big studio. That It's funny. That kind of jives with my working theory that the... The Stripes first, the Stripes sets were none of these songs coming up to this. And these were purely songs from prior to the Stripes that he mm-hmm. dusted off, which would be why Meg was probably feeling nervous because a lot of exceptionally talented musicians had worked on them up to this point. Yeah, but it seems like Jack really did try to reassure Meg. Ben Blackwell has said about the recording of this, Meg's quiet. But Meg's power is in that she only speaks up when she has to. She very rarely says anything, but when she says something, it holds an awful lot of weight. And Jack always takes what she has to say into serious consideration. So, you know, it kind of strengthens the um, Jack's reliance on Meg as being the center of the band. Right. And a very funny quote from, from Stuart Sykes as well. Jack told me more than once not to make it sound too good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Stuart. You did it wrong. It sounded really good, and it became one of their most popular albums. Oh, man. All right. I think we should get into the track by track. All right, let's do it. Track by track. So Side A kicks it off with uh, one of the White Stripes' strongest tunes of all time, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground. Yes. Um, Jack had said uh, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground was written before we did our first album. Sometimes there's songs that just get put aside until it feels right to do them. It was, uh, you know, one of their main singles for the album. In the UK, it came with a DVD that also had the infamous Arthur Dotweiler segment. Ah, Arthur! Uh, which, we could get into Arthur for a second, but I think that that documentary deserves its own show. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> our parents, uh, about ten years ago, signed a contract with this man named Arthur Dotweiler to be our manager. But Arthur is uh, who Jack claims to be his personal agent or something like that. Yeah, uh, like his personal man- tour manager or something. Yeah, his tour manager that his parents signed him up for before he got famous. Yeah, and so but he it's has like, to keep. Yeah, so he has to make Arthur happy. So he makes him like Pokemon Spaghettios and. Oh man, it's so uh, it's Pokemon Mac and Cheese <laughs> Pokemon and specifically. Mac and cheese. <laughs> it's mostly hilarious yes. uh, and sometimes very annoying, but it's worth a watch. It's about a half hour, but it's an interesting look into Jack White doing comedy, which. We didn't get a lot of, we got a lot of anger in the first two albums. Not yeah. a lot of comedy, so yeah. pretty cool. But by the way, a, a staple of his live sets to the to this day, I think he loves this song. I think he, because like before Blunderbuss, when Third Man was just sort of getting around and, and getting started up and he was doing the rolling record store, he'd play this one at some of those very small, like, you almost don't even, can't even call them shows, but... I think he loves this one and it's a memorable song and one of his strongest written songs he ever did. And the, the feedback opener on this, it's a, it's another kick down the door opener for a stripes album. I don't think we ever didn't get a kick down the door opener for a stripes album, but this is just a particularly strong one. No, it's it's definitely one of the most like badass songs on the album. You know, this stands alone. 
you know, you could listen to this song on any one of his current albums and it would fit in. Right. You know. This song is almost its own show. Like, there's so much in here. But uh, another thing I want to mention, too, is the reference to the Holy Ghost, touching on Jack's oh, yeah. Catholicism. Yeah, which pretty much his whole thing has been kind of revolving around the Trinity and Catholicism. Yeah. The um, video for this song is crazy, too. Well, there's a few right. videos, but the one with the house and, like, the ghost Meg and stuff, it's right. weird. Yeah, that music video is uh, directed by Michael Gondry, who did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What? Yeah. Oh, so, and he also did that McCartney video, the Dance Tonight video. I think. Oh, did he really? I think cool. so. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that that video is really poignant. It, it it's kind of a sad video. It's Jack coming home to a London apartment that's been trashed. You're watching what transpired being projected onto him in the house. It definitely fits uh, into Michael Gondry's Eternal Shun- Sunshine stuff because it's, you know, revolving around the combination of reality and dream and memory all kind of folding into one. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And on a weird note, it was uh, semi-parodied in Weird Al's 2009 song CNR about Charles Nelson <laughs> Riley. It wasn't a direct parody, but a lot of the same chords were used, like in the licks. Uh, he kind of had the same look as the 2001-2002 era Jack. One of my favorite one of my favorite Jack quotes of all time. When, when did you know you made it? When I have coffee with Weird Al Yankovic one day, that's when I know. It hasn't happened so, yet? No, no. Have you reached out? No, I probably should. <laughs> and that is from the Jordan Klepper interview right before he played the garden. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Friendship between those two is just so precious. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Let's move right along to uh, Hotel Yorba. Nice. My personal favorite White Stripe song of all time. It's amazing. Love that tune. Another tune that was written before The Stripes. He wrote it and cut it with uh, Two Star Tabernacle in 1998. And their version's like good, but it, it lacks some of the charm. It's like a little too polished. And that song really needs not polish, you know? Yeah, it's it's an it's like a run down an old country lane and you know, it's got that kind of fun Appalachian feel to it. Right. It was written about a Detroit slum hotel of the same name <laughs> which is still operating. You could go and stay there for I quoted them at thirty five dollars a night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't recommend it because uh, there is a lot of crack dealers there. Yeah, yeah. Bulletproof glass is not a nice way to make friends. No, <laughs> Jack is quoted as saying, "If you haven't heard that, you should check out on his on the vault release of the acoustic tour. He goes into recording the video at the Hotel Yorba. It's amazing. He tells this whole yes. story about this woman who wouldn't give him his like fifty bucks back or something, and he's like tries to start a fight. It's a it's awesome." <laughs> Um, the Yorba was a prominent hotel and landmark of the area, but it became a retirement home for older bachelors and then a halfway house for the Michigan Department of Corrections. Whoa. And for two decades, it was that halfway home. They placed parolees at the Yorba, uh, though they stopped it in 2003. So around the time of <laughs> Elephant, they had already stopped it. Oh, man. So that brings us to uh, a rag and bone of the week. Rag and bone! 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 In 2004, a man living at the Hotel Yorba killed a co-worker with a sword he made himself. What? And that man? Jack White. <laughs> Jack White. Everybody. <laughs> the Highlander himself. There can only be one. Jack White. That's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome for the guy that died from the sword wound. Right. But... No. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, it's a cool way to go. It only works if it was some sort of weird hibachi accident or something. <laughs> no, I mean, come on. If the guy killed him with a broadsword, that's kind of badass. Oh, man. Who's the last guy to do that? I mean... Game of <laughs> shitty throats. Game of rag and bones. Oh! Look at all this. You don't want it? You sure you don't want it, man? I can do it. Take it. The single version of the song was recorded in one of the rooms of the hotel, and the music video features a few scenes from the outside of the building, although they were denied p- permission to film inside. So they did try to film uh, inside the building, but they were kind of kicked out. Brendan Benson was was there for that. He was going to shoot it for him or reco- uh, mix it or something there, too. He was involved in that. He talks about it in the acoustic thing. 
Yeah, the, they never mentioned the room, the exact room that they recorded the single version in. I know a lot of uh, Jackalites have actually asked the hotel, you know, if they could stay in that room. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> please, please buy some of our crack or go away. Yeah, I, I prefer it that way, I think. I would rather them not turn into a tourist thing. I would rather them just be pissed off that people are coming by looking for it. Man, oh man, I love this hotel. But you know, you could you could definitely take a picture there and then run away real quick. Uh, yeah. I know that's what a lot of people do. But. It's like the quick stop in Jersey, you know. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this uh, this song, all right, Dead Leaves and Hotel Yorba as a one-two punch. Wow, that's oh, yeah. that is a strong way to open an album with those two songs, and both of those songs being these kind of classics of his whole career. Uh, out of the gate, it's amazing. Jack was quoted as saying, the Hotel Yoba is a really disgusting hotel, and there was a great rumor when I was a kid that the Beatles had stayed there. <laughs> they never did, but I loved that rumor anyway. It was funny. Ring the Beetle uh, Bell. James is going to rig up a Beetle Bell, <laughs> and he's going to kill a man with it inside the Hotel Yorba. <laughs> oh, man. The music video was directed by Dan Miller. Meg's just kind of on the bed playing uh, boxes. It's a great drum. Yeah. yeah, it's a really fun little look into their life. The next song is I'm Finding It Hard to Be a Gentleman. Uh, again, love this song. It's hard not to say I love this song to all of the songs in this album because I really do. Um, oh, yeah, but it's so good though. Well, I'm finding it harder to be a gentleman every day. Jack was uh, kind of emulating the lyrics of bluesmen like Sunhouse and Blind Willie McTell, but it's not really bluesy. His rules are kind of weird and flimsy in this album, but... I appreciate that he put them in place, but I think it's why we get so many similar sounding songs on the thing, is because, yeah. is because they, yeah, he's pulling from similar chord progressions and stuff. I love the line, I feel comfortable, so baby, why don't you feel the same? I feel comfortable, so baby, why don't you feel the same? Because I feel like Jack would be most unhappy as comfortable, so this mm. really kind of details why he's so frustrated, and frustration is, as you said, a common theme of this album. The notion of comfort pops up a lot in Jack's songs, a common theme, and on this album especially. Right. It's the third song that is kind of a love story, or a lack thereof. You know, it's more of a down note. It's more sad than anything. Ben Blackwell asked him, are you finding it hard to be a gentleman? And Jack replies, yeah, Ben, that song nails it. A feeling in the Jonathan Richmond type point of view. The guy standing in the corner with his hands in his pockets. And Jonathan Richmond, uh, if you didn't know, was a proto-punk singer for the Modern Lovers, who wrote about love and heartache uh, with a childlike attitude and outlook. So ah. that seems right up Jack's alley. Yeah, I didn't uh, know he was influenced by them. They're great. Yeah. Right from that song, we get into the second of the White Stripes big bangers on this album, Fell in Love with a Girl. This song is known by uh, pretty much everybody who who doesn't even know the White Stripes. Like, uh, it's Seven Nation Army famous. Yeah, this song is the one where if you're listening to this with somebody, you're forcing to listen to this that doesn't know anything about Jack White. They know about this song. For those people, this is the Lego one. <laughs> this is the Lego one. <laughs> it's yeah. It's the it's got the famous Lego music video again by Michael Gondry. Wow, Jack, if you're listening, please make a music video compilation. We'd love it. Yeah, we need one of those. I would buy that for a dollar. A gold dollar. <laughs> the video was given so many awards. It was given three MTV Music Awards for best editing, best special effects, and breakthrough video. Yeah. Well, those are valuable, yeah. Mm -hmm. The song itself was released on two separate singles, not just one, uh, a red version and a white version. The lyrics of it were included in uh, Weird Al's, the third Weird Al reference, Oh, Weird Al's yeah. Angry White Boy Polka. This song uh, clocks in at a cool minute 50 seconds. It's really short. And even more spectacularly, it is not the shortest song on the album by two no. other songs, which in itself is insane. So at this point in the Stripes career, they're still keeping 
keeping their pace really high. They don't actually go above 3 minutes 39 seconds on this album, and that's really brief. I think this song really does what he does best, which is leaving you wanting more. It's not a go-to for me. I think I treat this one like I treat Stairway to Heaven. Like, it's the one everybody knows, so I'm like, God, why don't you know any of the deep cuts? Why don't you play Who's a Big Baby? Yeah, I was just gonna say, Paul wants some blues on two trees. He doesn't want any of this fell in love with a girl bullshit. But, like, it really is a good song, and when he does a slower acoustic version, I definitely like it more, which he's done. I appreciate this song. It is not characteristic, I would say, of his discography, but you can hear in listening to his influences where this came from. Flat Duo Jets were recording these types of songs, and that was one of his biggest influences. So I get it. Mm -hmm. I get why he did it. I get why it fits. It's just not one of my favorites. Maybe it's just because it's so fast-paced. I think it's some of Meg's best drumming on this album. Yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder if they sped it it up at all. I don't know. I don't know. But it it kicks off with a bang, and it it just keeps going, and the guitar riffs are, are really solid, and... You know, it's an enjoyable little ditty. Yeah, it made him a household name, and for that, I think we can all appreciate it. Right. Um, the Lego guy. The, <laughs> we can all appreciate Mr. Legoman. <laughs> Jack Legoman. I think, actually, he was invited to, to Legoland because of this. Oh, really? Have you ever been to Legoland? No, not yet. Have you had any offers to go to Legoland? We did have an offer to go there once, and uh, we didn't go. I, I don't know why we didn't go. We didn't have time, I don't think. <laughs> He was expecting too much, perhaps. (laughs) And from there, we jump to our next song, Expecting. James, get me. (laughs) To Toledo. Toledo. Is it weird? I always draw that line. I love that line, by the way. I always connect that line to the Wichita line from Seven Nation Army. Ah, that's kind of funny, yeah. I feel like he sometimes just sort of finds names of weird places that he likes and works them into songs and about going there to presumably build a home. Uh, I guess yeah, it's it's weird that he chooses such obscure cities that are actually kind of well-known. He's actually quoted as saying, well, Toledo has been that sought-after destination point. All right, let me cut him <laughs> off there. For who, Jack? Who is this a sought-after destination point? No offense to the people or anybody listening in Toledo. Yeah. But then he goes on to say, people don't exactly go on vacation there. Okay, good point. You're right. <laughs> the girl in the song was sending me to do things for her, like run an errand to Toledo, which probably wouldn't be fun. <laughs> Expecting is about being in a one-sided relationship with a girl and being used by her. You know, it's it's not that deep of a song, but it's definitely continuing the theme of tragic love stories or relationships not going quite right. There's a tonal break in this song where it changes pacing a little bit. He uses that quite a bit throughout his songs, like even up to this day with... Lazaretto, you know, that one breaks and then goes doom, 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 doom. So that, mm-hmm. that's, that shows up here, which actually does the song a lot of favors. And it, it saves it for me a little bit because it's one of the more forgettable ones, in my opinion. The one curiosity I have about this song is that Meg at the very end says something. The rest of that sentence is somewhat unintelligible. So I wonder if, like, based on what you were just saying, I wonder if she's saying, can you get something from Toledo? Like, that's sending him out on an errand. Yeah, that's interesting. I never caught that line. We jump right into Little Room, which, may I say, is the theme song to this album, because it basically encapsulates everything Jack has been trying to say with the artwork, with the title, with his thoughts and his conventions and his weird rules. With the band in general, this song is just sums everything up. Well, you're in your little room, and you're working on something good. But if it's really good, you're gonna need a bigger room. It's about outgrowing your pond, so to speak. You know, you're a big fish in a little pond, and then you become a little fish in a big pond. At some point, you do turn into Adrian Brody, I think. He was in Big Fish, right? (laughs) Check. Check. One, two, check. This is the shortest song on the album, by the way. Right. This this clocks in at a at a cool fifty seconds. Fifty seconds. Holy Toledo. Yeah. Yeah. Check <laughs> check one. Jack has been quoted as saying, It's about how if you're a great painter and you're painting in your room and all of a sudden someone sees it, then they're all, This is great, you're genius, let's have a show. So they have a show and everyone goes nuts. Then you're like, Okay, let's have another show and now your inspiration isn't from where it used to be and when no one knew about you. How do you keep your inspiration? He's dealing with success. That's it goes back to the whole album. He wrote his songs in a little room from his little like 
five by five square foot bedroom in his parents' house. You know, he had a drum kit and a mattress that he dragged in there, and that was about all he could fit. If you had one song to sum up everything he thinks about the world, I think it's Little Room. It's a song that Mm. confounded me when I first heard it. I was like, this is terrible. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, this is really good. But if it's really good... I'm going to need a bigger <laughs> gonna need room. A bigger room. <laughs> and it's one I think about a lot. I think I use this song in my day-to-day life just thinking about the little room and the little box he put himself in and I think it's really it's more profound than it lets on for a 50 seconds little tune. Well, CFK, which, what do you got? Yeah, we moved from there to The Union Forever, which was another song that he wrote before The White Stripes came to be. The whole song is plugged from words from citizen kane uh so he wrote the song based on that film most lyrics are lifted right from it a line uh sure i'm cfk but you gotta love me the cfk stands for charles foster kane but no man can say but But you you gotta gotta love me me. some more lines i just i found this stuff super interesting so i'm just gonna say some lines um kane as a child was telling uh some folks come on boys the union forever so that's where he gets that line from a co-worker says it's from Mr. Kane, to which Thatcher goes, go on, and the secretary says, sorry, but I'm not interested in gold mines, oil wells, shipping, or real estate. Even that line, yeah. you know, is, which is one of the most interesting lines in the song, yeah. is from that movie. Jack was quoted as saying, I was thinking about different things people said in the film. I wrote them down, and some of them started to rhyme, so it worked out. Okay, that makes sense. And then uh, he said, there's a song in the movie called It Can't Be Love Because There Is No True Love that plays at this party they have in the Everglades during the films. I could never find what this song was about. It was a 40 song, some jazz standard. I could never find it. I was trying to play it on guitar and I said a line from the movie and I was playing the chords and it was like, I wonder if I can rhyme that with something else from the movie. I, I had a lot of lines memorized already and then I went through the film and started writing down things that might rhyme together, that might make sense together. So he, you know, he doesn't really pull any punches. He's like, yeah, I just ripped lines straight from this movie. Yeah. It's a song he did with Brendan Benson with the Bricks, too, prior to mm-hmm. the Stripes, which is cool. But their version sounds a little kind of poppy because that's Brendan Benson. But this one almost sounds like the Dead Weather could do it. You know? When, right. When you hear this one, it sounds kind of like it belongs on Whorehound or something. Yeah, the guitar kind of stumbles through. It's just boom, ba dun ding, 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 ding. Yeah. So it's it's got this ominous vibe to it he pulls even uh during the bridge of the song he basically lifts a song from the movie the whole there is a man section uh we can hear a little bit of it here from the movie good evening mr kane there is a man a A certain man and for the boy you may be sure that he'll do all he can who is this one who is this one his favorite son that's why his action has the traction magnets on the run who loves to smoke So that that whole sec- segment was basically lifted from it. So much so that the studio actually decided to sue Jack White over this. Whoa! Around 2003, 2004, when Elephant was hitting it big with Seven Nation Army, nobody was quite sure why it took them two years to get around to it. The copyright attorney says that the band could owe in excess of three or four million dollars in back royalties if they lose. What happened? I- Well, another attorney pointed out that Jack has always been open about the inspiration and that uh, they were able to use successfully the defense that it was transformative of the work. And he was more or less collaging a song together in an Andy Warhol pop art kind of way. You hear that, Um, Jack? That's a defense for us. Don't sue us. We're we're Andy Warhols over here. We're we're pop pop artin'. Copyright attorney Lawrence Pulgram explained that White's patchwork writing method could actually be the band's primary defense. He commented, the White Stripes would argue that its use is transformative and that it does not merely copy the film in a film, but takes bits and pieces of the film and transforms them into a song, and that this will not reduce sales or otherwise affect the market for the film. So that was uh, pulled from whitestripes.net. Very good resource. Uh, I love this next song, though. 
Yeah, the next song is The Same Boy You've Always Known, which was written well before the White Stripes' inception. It was played live at Two Star Tabernacle. He's been playing it pretty much throughout his entire career with different bands. He even played it on the French Chateau de Fontainebleau with Lily Mae Rishi. Yeah, that's my favorite version of the song, actually, in that big cathedral. It's really good. I think he plays that with the full Lazaretto band. Yeah, he's got Dominic there on the bass, the upright bass, and Lily Mae in the... With the fiddle. Except stuff. I want to say Daru, because there's no drums on it. But yeah, it's a really solid song. Kind of gets that teenage angsty yes. feel to it. Some people think it's about Meg. They're probably wrong. This was written before then. I don't know if it's about Meg, but it captures that feeling. It sounds high schooly, but it's a mature look back at that feeling. Yeah, he was on record as saying if there's any song to be played at his memorial, it would be the same boy we've always known. That is haunting. Yes. Yes. He said, I don't really know if that song's really about me. It did feel like that at the time, that at least the sentence, I'm the same boy you've always known, was. It sort of encapsulates the idea as an artist's way of always trying to paint like a child paints. Always remove yourself from the environment and get back down to the reality of who you might be inside. And how some of us never really feel like we've grown up. A lot of us feel like we're these boys and girls trapped in adult bodies. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it clearly means a lot to him. Even if he didn't say any of that, you know, you could tell by the fact that he plays it pretty much all the time. Oh, yeah, plays this one a lot. We should hear a little bit of that. Love that tune. So right from there, we move to side B. Oh, um, do we have any Napoleon heads in the audience? <laughs> Dynamite! Remember that one? Uh, my my wife. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the song that got big from Napoleon Dynamite, We're Going to Be Friends. For those of you who don't know, it plays in its entirety during the opening credits of Napoleon Dynamite, the hit MTV film about llamas and distress. <laughs> Spend the shoes, walk in blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Is this the side closer or the opener? The side opener. Wow, that's a bold choice for an opener. Right, but it's another song that people really know, and it's the second time we hear Susie Lee appear. Yes, yes. It's kind of a nice sweet little song in the midst of all this chaos and heartbreak it's kind of innocent this whole song is really sweet surprisingly for jack it's a perfect snapshot of that time in life actually which is why i think it resonated with people even if you never had experiences that are exactly that you know what he's talking about yeah it kind of captures elementary school he was quoted as saying i didn't really have much of a great time in grade school so i like writing about that I write about it a lot, actually having friends in grade school and having a girlfriend or something back then when you really wanted it. Kids are just so cruel sometimes. It's nice to fantasize that they're not. Yeah, it's an idealized version. It's another one of these nursery rhyme kind of things, which is a theme in the White Stripes. They write these sort of nursery rhyme style songs to go with the childish stuff. The video to this, too, is really cool. It's that second video where it's just Jack playing the song. And Meg is lying there. Yeah, they're outside on a couch outside of uh, their house in Detroit. Yeah. The video is as innocent as the song. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I remember thinking when I was watching Napoleon Dynamite at a friend's house for the first time and I heard this song and I was like, oh, okay, they made it. The Stripes made it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird song choice to think that, but. Offensive, you might call. Which brings us to our next (laughs) song, Offend in Every Way. (laughs) is uh the exact opposite the exact opposite of this <laughs> elementary school innocence i'm not exactly sure the backstory meaning is he never really expands upon it that i can find so please write us if if you know um i, I can surmise i mean it sounds like do is part one and this is part two because okay. it's about opening your mouth and being offensive without meaning it i think i mean when you listen to the lyrics it just seems like he doesn't want to be offensive, but he can't help but being it because that's mm. the, what is happening when he's opening his mouth, which is kind of a continuation of that social anxiety theme present in Do. Yeah, I kind of had a similar interpretation. I, I had two possible meanings behind the song. The first one is meeting a loved one's family for the first time, which 
it seems unlikely to me to be the meaning, but uh, it does kind of fit in with the the rest of the album. I get it. I could see Uh, that, yeah. So being in a relationship and having the family having expectations and you're just constantly offending them. Yeah, which also is a common theme that pops up, by the way. In Elephant, we get that too. But anyway. Yeah. I want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I just, I always kind of picture him at a dinner table. You know, the rest of the family is saying like a, a Jewish Seder or something. And Jack's just like, Hail Mary, full of grease <laughs> and, uh, and offending in every you. way. Yes. <laughs> but my second interpretation, which to me seems the most likely, is about his fame. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's a small town hero and going to national fame. And, you know, he's facing reception to all these people in New York and Los Angeles who are like, go on, impress us. Yeah, it's his fault for being famous. Right, exactly. A lot Lines like, I'm coming through the door, but they're expecting more of an interesting man. Sometimes I think I can, but how much can I fake? I'll speak until I break with every word I say, offend in every way. That line specifically, he's walking through the door of this club and people are like, oh, it's you're just a guy. Yeah. No matter what I do. Paul, what do you what are you doing? Do you do you smell do you, do you smell something? Do you smell that? I I think I think I, I, think smell, I smell a rat. rat. Oh, I think I smell a rat. Uh, so I think I smell a rat uh, is a really weird song. Oh, it's Jack's first old man song. It is. The, I have that in my notes yes. as the first instance of Jack hating youth culture. <laughs> it is Entitlement Episode 1. He says that these songs aren't about him. They're just stories he's telling. But this one really seems kind of yeah. Him. I mean, he kind of does say that. He says there's these punk kids who break windows and stuff like that. And, you know, make fun of me when I walk into the gas station. It's like I've lived here my whole life. And he's eight years old and telling me like that. And they get away with murder. <laughs> he really, he's, he's lashing out at the kids. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I can't help but also read into him lashing out at the Detroit scene at this time. Because as we know, this is only a couple of years, eh, like four years. But still, it's not that long after he and Meg just decide enough is enough and move mm-hmm. uh, from Detroit. So I have to believe some of this is like the people that he used to chill with or the or worse yet the youngsters who are just coming up now and he's been playing for a few years and all they've all got judgments about i mean i i can't help but read like some of this being bitterness toward detroit right they should just turn their smartphones off and go play outside yes he wrote this the day before they left for the studio in memphis wow so clearly Meg was kind of in the right saying, are we ready? These songs are a little new, Jack. <laughs> but it's a strong song. And you know what? It's memorable. When I first heard it, it took me by surprise because I didn't know what to make of it. But it also stuck in my head. And I was like, yeah, okay. And uh, he plays this one live a lot too. So I think he likes it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he puts a lot of feeling into it. A lot of emphasis. Yeah. He played uh, it live when we saw him at Madison Square Garden. I remember... And I remember it just because he used this one a little bit as a bridge between songs. He typically does that with a lot of Stripe songs. But When he was writing this song, he was hitting one chord on the piano, and he, he just kept playing it over and over again. And then he just kept saying to himself over and over again, I think I smell a rat. <laughs> so that's pretty much how the song was written. Is it, uh, he couldn't th- is it possible he, he has a rodent infestation? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he... Um, he couldn't think of anything else to go with with that song. He wanted to to have like a guitar section after all this, but he couldn't think of anything to put after it. <laughs> this song would have benefited from a solo, I think. Probably. He's quoted as saying, we had this other song called That's Where It's At, and we didn't put it on the first album. The lyric was, all you people know just where it's at now, walking down the street with a baseball bat now. So that's pulled from a scrap pile from oh, the first album. That's cool. I didn't know that. Meg played it with him and he uh, started singing the lyrics to the other song and he said this is perfect. Nice. Is it is now what were those baseball bats made out of? <laughs> that That's a good question, Paul. They may perchance have been made of aluminum. Aluminium. Let's let's hear a little bit of this before we get into it. I love 
love um, this song. It's the proto highball stepper. I feel like this, yeah. this song is highball stepper episode one. Yeah. It's the first instrumental that he puts on an album. It's great, too. I love it, actually. I sort of forgettable, but it's very 60s, kind of hums along. It's very haunting and loud, is what I put in my notes. Yeah. But I love the, the harmony. The harmony, he's got the, the ah! Yeah. It's actually really good. It's the less annoying version of Highball Stepper. Yeah, I do like Highball Stepper, but it yeah, it gets a little annoying after a while. But yeah, there's not much to it other than it's a song about the formation of aluminum in a factory, and that's what the voices are trying to imitate. Was, oh, okay. Was that, so. That's cool. Um, yeah, and factory life and stuff is really important to Detroit. Wow. So. That's cool. It's a Detroit original. James, I I am really looking forward to this next one. I I just I, I'm counting the seconds here and um I can't wait. Oh that brings us to our next song. I can't wait. <laughs> I I do love this song, but Jack apparently does not. He said he wished he didn't put it on this album. I uh, agree. He says he he says he recorded it too fast and it didn't mean anything. Meg had said, I remember rehearsing it and it was the one that we were the most excited about and thought it would sound the best. And once it was down on tape, it was like, this doesn't actually sound that good. <laughs> I mean, it's not the worst thing ever, but it's definitely the weakest track for me on this album. It's just the lyrics are a little corny to me. I feel like the same boy I've always done really does a good job of what this song is trying to do. It also kind of reads like two songs stuck together. I wouldn't be shocked if we found out that the I Thought You Made Up Your Mind bit was its own song before this. It definitely fits in with the, the type of song he's putting in on this album. What, angry? Yeah. <laughs> a- angry and lovelorn and... Lovelorn, you know, yeah. Upset. I will say, Meg's drumming on this song is great. I also, this is one of the references to The House Felt Like a Home. It's all over his songs. He says that a lot. I really do find this song catchy yeah, God, uh, towards yeah. the end. Yeah, I agree. It was rushed. Yeah, I, I do like that. That it, it comes back to that 60s sound that I feel like this album has, which is what I think appealed mm-hmm. to me when I was first listening to it. We move from, from, that, from that rushed song and our rushed interpretation of the song to... <laughs> Now Mary, another song that was written before the Stripes Inception. It was written and cut during the Two Star Tabernacle days again in 1998. Great song. It, uh, I love this song. Yeah, it's, it seems to be about a breakup again. And, uh, you know, it's a sense of love and relationships being kind of futile and finite. Some lyrics that lend itself to that. Knowing you, I'll think things are going to be fine. But then again, you'll probably change your mind. That's my fun little way of saying it. Uh <laughs> And uh, I'm sorry, Mary, but being your mate means trying to find something that you aren't going to hate. Um, wow. It's kind of sad. It's sad. I mean, it's a strong song, though. It's really strong. It's got that, again, that 60s thing. kind of honky-tonk sound on it. Of the back half of this album, which I think is definitely weaker than the than the, than side A, this, this song stands out as a really good one. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. He did this song with The Bricks and with Two Star Tabernacle. But in the end, I think the more produced sounding version of this song that he was doing with the groups just doesn't have the same kind of charm that it has when he's doing it with Meg. If he didn't like that song, Paul. um... Oh, I can learn. (laughs) Which brings us to I Can Learn. I um, love this song. Yeah, it's it's good. It's... um, it's dark and foreboding. It's a guy trying to, you know, make a girl his, and it's got this weird, creepy overtone at, at the start. The darkness kind of takes a turn for the sad after the line, I'm no longer one. Well, isn't this fun? Yeah. It's funny. I could, I could hear Dusty Springfield doing this song, or like Nancy Sinatra or something. No one will come of it. This album doesn't need any protection, but if it did, you would be this, this protector. <laughs> I, I, um, speaking of Get Behind Me Satan, this song it sounds like it fit right in on that album. It's just all yeah. piano, kind of low-key. I like this song a lot, and it's a good ending. Like I haven't found a meaning quite for it yet, or like, how he wrote it. A lot of people seem to think that the song references a flood in West Virginia. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking, because I was trying to figure out where the hell that West Virginia reference came from. Yeah, it might be about the Buffalo Creek flood disaster in West Virginia in 1972. A coal mine dam failed and flooded the town below, and um, 
the inspector had deemed the site satisfactory three days earlier. Wow. Um, so he might be referencing that. 300 people living out in West Virginia Have no idea of all these thoughts that lie you But now That's another Jack 3 reference. Three, but... 300 people who live in West Virginia. Yeah. yeah. First of all, it's it starts off with Meg speaking unintelligibly about something. Yes. Um, and they actually harmonize and she sings on this song, which is great. Mm-hmm. We don't get that a lot in these early albums. Six years later, they'd be doing this type of song right before they broke, mm-hmm. break up. Feels very. I, 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 I would wonder if this is the kind of safe space Meg might need to deal mm-hmm. with her anxiety. Most most of their albums end with Meg being present, which I think Jack tries to to do. Right, great song, great great closer, love it. Yeah, really kind of haunting and touching. There's no one else Looking at the door. It's coming through the floor. To be noted, uh, the Japanese version included. Uh, Jolene, which was a single, that and Handsprings, which was a oh. previously recorded song. That's an older uh, which one. Was a, yeah, a single split release from 2000. Handsprings was also included on a DVD single from this album, which also included Lafayette Blues. Credits for the album, Meg was drums and backing vocals, Jack on vocals, piano and guitar. It was produced by Jack, mixed by Jack and Stuart Sykes, engineered by Stuart Sykes, mastered by Fred Kevorkian, which, <laughs> God, I love that name. Layout and design were by Third Man and Twirly Red. Photography by Patrick Pantano, who was a member of the Dirt Bombs and Rocket 455, wow. two other Detroit grunge yeah, bands. Yeah. The acknowledgments, uh, God, Family, Long Gone John. Whoa! Long Gone, you made, you done made it. You made it, you made it big. Uh, Stuart Sykes, Pat Pantano, the Bacteria, Marcy. That's Marcy Bolin, who he would date from the Von Bonnets. Oh! <laughs> oh my goodness! He calls her the Bacteria Marcy. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's about to get infected with that bacteria. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Co, Jason, Jim, Matt, BJ, Swank, Dan Miller, T, Race, May, Damian Lang, Brendan Benson, Dave Sardi, Jack Hotel Yarber, (laughs) Jeff Evans, Christy Rank, Leslie Sundahl, Fred Kevorkian, Frozen Swanson. And then the album was dedicated to Loretta Lynn. Oh, that's interesting. That's sweet. Not two years later, he'd be doing Vandalier Rooms with her. With Stuart Sykes, the guy who engineered this album. The reception was glowing. So you can get a um, a sign of the times of the, the mystery of the White Stripes. In this Rolling Stone article, they write, Jack and Meg White, allegedly brother and sister, look like they haven't been out of their apartment in six years. <laughs> uh, they say also, Meg bashes out a supersized Sasquatch beat on a cheap trap set, <laughs> while Jack strangles his electric guitar and yelps tales of puppy love and insect inspection. It's not nosed glee. So, I mean, really the ultimate reception of this album is Fell in Love with a Girl, Runaway Single, and then mm-hmm. Jack takes this album from Sympathy and puts it out with Richard Branson and uh, Virgin right. under the V2 yeah, label. V2. And this is the this is the album that breaks away from that homegrown Sympathy for the Record Industry streak. From here on, this is the thing that made Third Man Records possible. To celebrate the release, they played the Gold Dollar. That's right. They had a party for it. They talk about it in that Candy Colored Blues. Uh, They played the Magic Bag and they played the Magic Stick. Meg had said that they were going to make the entrance fee something red and white for the Gold Dollar. And Jack had added, but we haven't talked about how that would actually work out because there are other bands on the bill and they need to get paid money. (laughs) (laughs) Also to be pointed out here, Sympathy for the Record Industry's distribution was super unreliable so djs in order to get this album and review it actually had to go out and buy their own copies they would rather do that than wait around for long gone to get to sending them promo copies so do do we want to give it our rating yeah let's give it a rating all right so if you're not familiar we pretty much like all of his albums so we decided to forego the the star rating because you know everything would be high so we decided to do out of three men so uh do you want to give it a rating yes i, I will do that i will also preface this by saying i have fond memories of listening to this album 
I really, I love it. I think Elephant was the first one that I ever felt was like mine, but this one, it was the first record I had heard when it was coming out at the time. So I really do have, I love it a lot for that reason. And also I have a good memory of my one and only radio show in college. I played some songs from this album and on the wall was the album cover just staring at me because somebody had pasted it up in the uh, recording booth. So I have good memories of this album. I love it a lot. I am going to have to give this one a 2.5 men out of three. Oh, Paul's second 2.5 men. Yes, because there are Stripes albums I like more than it, but it's significant in a lot of ways. I I love it in a lot of places. 2.5. All right. Solid. Uh, yeah, my, my first introduction to the album was basically through popular media, you know, MTV. I used to wake up in the morning and watch music videos on MTV and VH1. The Lego video was on there and, I, you know, I was a kid, so I was just like, yeah, Legos. And then the song was also awesome. <laughs> so that was my first real introduction to this album. So I'm going to give it three three men. I'm going to give it three men. Three out men. Of, out of three. It's a solid album. Yeah. It's good rating. Uh, this is a selection that I go to and this is this is definitely one of them, so... I'm keeping my threes in my quiver. All right. I got them ready to fire at two albums in particular. Oh, I, I can think of at least one. So with that, we're going to move on to uh, to our next segment. I'd like to welcome our third man uh, of the week again, Mike Cass Jezitis, the fifth. Sorry, the third. I thought it was the sixth. Thank you, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. We would like to uh, welcome Mike for one of our favorite segments, one that Mike himself has introduced to us. Jack White, what are you wearing? What he's wearing right now. (laughs) So this is a segment in which we go over. um, So this is a segment in which we're uh, trying to pick one of our favorite outfits that we've seen Jack White wear. So do, do each of us have a favorite Jack outfit? Oh, I've got one in mind. Mike, what do you got? I, I just uh, Skyped you it. Okay, so if you check out the Daily Mail article, I just said you scroll all the way down past the two photos of him and Karen, and then it's him in the black Western gear. This is not my favorite Jack hair era, but outfit era. So this is 2013 Jack White blunderbuss era. Okay. Uh, full peacock and yes. uh, like paisley. Yes. This is my favorite. Do you want to describe the outfit to us? Sure. Just really sure. give us a give us a d- some details here. So Jack is wearing a suit with what appears to be white peacock feathers with a interior blue eye almost. There's a lot on the lapel, the shoulders, the breast section, the the arms, and then the, the suit legs as well. I, I guess you would call them pants. Have the same print down them on the sides and his hair looks absolutely terrible. It's, <laughs> it's almost like a mop was dried after being wet in the sun, but not enough to make it fully dry. So it's kind of like mildly damp and then yeah. really, really frizzy, but the suit is outstanding. It's a pretty nice suit <laughs> it uh, is. for for a rock star. I mean, I don't it's think I could go suit. to like a, a wedding and, and rock that. I mean, I feel like this was an awkward era for him style-wise, though, because it's that transition out of, like, you know, we did the Stripes thing, now I'm solo, I mildly don't have my identity yet, because this is the beginning of, like, the big band era, or the middle of it, if I remember right. So I feel like he's, like, he's feeling out his confidence with this, but the suit is very good. Very yeah, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So I'll send you guys my, uh, my pick of the week, which is this picture right here of... Lazaretto era Jack looking oh so dapper so to describe it he's wearing a very nice tailored suit looks good maybe maybe a Joseph A. Bank a little glossy it's kind of nice he's got some kind of what appears to be an eyeball ring um, <laughs> which is a nice touch an elephant cane <laughs> uh, a bolo tie attached to a real tie uh <laughs> Some red lipstick, some red eyeliner, and his hair appears to be the nest of several birds. I don't know. They've thrown up and they've lived in this. This is a lived-in house. This is a lived-in look. Uh, His hair is great. That's my pick of the week. Guys, any impressions? 
This is terrifying. I think this is from one of the Rolling Stone shoots or right around that time. They started calling him like the Willy Wonka of rock or something, which (laughs) is terrible. He kind of deserves it. Yeah, that's not good, though. It's terrible. We'll we'll put all these pictures in the show notes, by the way. Yeah. We'll we'll have all these available for you to admire in private. Good suits, terrible hair. Wow. Oh, I love this one. So I just sent you guys mine. That's a good one. Yeah, so, so my pick is from the Conquest music video, which is amazing. It's a great music video where the he falls in love with the bull, or he like feels super bad for the bull and doesn't want to kill it, and then like he sees like like hearts appear in the bull's eyes or whatever, and or they get really big and doughy. And this ensemble here is just a classic conquistador outfit, but themed in white stripes colors. So you know, just really befitting. Yeah. The picture itself is actually from the Conquest 45s. Oh, okay. They included the little mini poster in 45 cents. That's one of them. And I love this outfit because it's basically, uh, it's like Jack the Mouseketeer. Is he standing on Meg? <laughs> He's always been standing on Meg since they started. It's a good point. Philosophically, yes. Agreed. Yeah. But like, is there one leg on Meg? Like, is that a foot on her shoulder? I think so. I think his weight's on the actual thing, the whatever that so is. is the has he conquested Meg's left shoulder? Yes. <laughs> Many times. You're you're gross. Your wife would be not be happy with that comment, James. Well, good job guys, we did it. So that's going to wrap it up for us here with the Third Man Podcast. I want to thank Mike Jositis again for being our third man this week. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. If we got anything wrong, again, feel free to email us at thirdmanpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, I'd also like to thank my fellow Third Men house band members, Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti. Yes. For our theme song. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you. Wonderful. We love it. Yeah. You could also check us out at thethirdmen.wordpress.com because we're legit like that. You can find us on Twitter at thirdmencast or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thirdmen. Yeah. So if you know a jackhead out there, please spread the word. Obviously, we don't advertise because we don't make any money off of this at all. Jack, are you hearing us? Uh, The only way that people are going to learn about the albums is if you tell a friend. So if you know anybody, get it out there. And Paul, as always, I'll be looking for a home. I'll be looking for a home. See you next week. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time.